Hello. Oh, good. Uh, Rod's going to stop the music, which is a huge disappointment. Hello. Good morning. We are uh, in the middle of a... Maybe. Maybe we'll stop the music. Who would rather just listen to music? I feel like this morning... I would actually just rather listen to music than talk about foreskins, but that goes for most days. It's a good question. This is what happens when you have amateurs on the sound desk, which is why you never allow ill sound people, no matter what. I'm just going to go and have a look. One moment, please. This is like our super slick operation we uh, like to... Use here, just to show everyone that everything's always under control. Um, yeah. Da, 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 da. I said, da, 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 da. that noise is supposed to do it. So, this may trouble you, but um, I feel like my um, presenting coherently brain space has been totally squeezed out by how do you make a, a foldback work brain space. So, you're going to have to be exceedingly gracious this morning. Uh, but this is this one. This little talk here, slash discussion, because I want some input from you, um, is going to feel, uh, for some of you, like, who cares? But that's like most Sundays, right? So that's all right. And for some of you, it's going to feel like really important because it's the stuff that you grapple with. So if you're the kind of person whose main relationship with the Bible is this kind of um, relationship where you go to find out what God's like, and have kind of an intimate, nourishing relationship and all of those kinds of things. If that's kind of your main lens, then today might just be like, yeah, why doesn't everyone just get over themselves? If your relationship with the Bible um, has been defined around how are we supposed to live in light of this, what are we supposed to do with what the Bible tells us we're supposed to do, this might feel really pointy for you. So, you know, if you're in the first category, chill out, um, get a coffee, whatever. Um, but for me, as a person uh, who was raised with a very strong sense of my relationship with God should affect how I live and how I know, sh- how, I know how I should live is by reading the Bible as an instruction manual. Therefore, um, being faithful to God is, is trying to be faithful to every instruction I can find. That thing weighed really, really heavily on me. And I have spent my whole life trying to work out what it is to be faithful to that. And today, we're going to kind of push some boundaries on how I was raised to view the Bible, but what I, what I now believe is a much more faithful way of doing so. And we're going to do that by looking at a bit of Scripture. Uh, So if Scripture troubles you, again, block your ears. Uh, And I'm going to need a couple of readers. So 
Well, today is entitled Family, Foreskins, and Pizza Dreams. Uh, here we go. Who would like to read a Genesis passage? It's a pretty good one. Like, there's no um, genocide in it, so that's a good start. We're going easy today because we've got the kids in. Anyone? I, saw, I, I see that hand. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. So, Rod. Yeah, if you buy them after eight days old, it's unclear. But if in your shopping you do pick up a baby or two, cut them immediately. Okay. So... How are we going with this? If we do a brief synopsis of this text here, this is one of the central and defining texts for Jews. So in the Hebrew Bible, this is one of the defining texts for what it means to be the people of God. Okay? Um, a few things I want to point out. One, don't buy children. Um, two, <laughs> two, highlighting here, for the generations to come. For the generations to come. That means that this thing is forever. Right? Right. And for those of you know who, know who know a little bit about the New Testament, they were Jewish. The early church was predominantly made up of Jews who encountered Jesus and then had to work out how to live. Paul, who, if you've ever quoted a bad instruction from the New Testament, um, was the Jewiest of all Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was a person whose whole life was revolved around knowing what the law was and what it meant. And Paul was a Jew till the day he died. But at some point along the way, Paul met Jesus which we'll talk about in a minute, and that really messed some things up because Paul now had a problem because to be faithful to God, the God of Jesus, and to be faithful to the law, which was God's instructions, provided some conflicts. <laughs> we've, got, we've got slip sketches going on down here. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Um, This is Paul. 
writing a letter to the Corinthians. Can I have someone to read this one? Yay! Nevertheless, each person, person, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be, un- he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Okay. Questions of how to become uncircumcised aside. (laughs) There were foreskin shops everywhere, okay? Where do we strike a problem? Where's the conflict between these two passages? Keeping God's command, and he already made a command. So according to Genesis, who's supposed to be circumcised? Everyone. For all the generations. That everyone, for all of the generations... If you wanted to be in the people of God, circumcision wasn't what got you in, but it was what showed you were in. For all of Israel's history, that was the understanding. Paul, who spends enormous amounts of time building all of his work and ethos off the commands of the Old Testament, hits this point here and goes, nah, don't worry about that. Keep God's commands. Don't get circumcised. Does that make sense to anyone? No, me neither. Okay. Paul said a lot of things. (laughs) Do this, don't do that. God is like this, we are like that. Some of them come easily to us. Some of them are pretty jarring. One of the problems with seeing the Bible as an instruction manual is that it means you end up seeing a lot of instructions but missing a whole lot of other things. When Paul says do this or do that, it's easy to think that he had some kind of hotline to God and our job is simple, just do this or do that. This is compounded by the fact that most of his instructions feature in letters, which he's writing to churches, which are back and forth conversations of which we've only got one side and not even the whole of one side. Um, between First and Second Corinthians, there's at least one, possibly two letters that got sent back and forth that we're completely missing. So we're hearing one side of a conversation. What we don't see when we read Paul's instructions, I'm picking on Paul here, A, because I want to use him as an example, but B, because Paul, perhaps even more than Jesus, for lots of us who grew up evangelicals, is the primary shaping voice of the most explicit instructions of what you should and shouldn't do. Those of you who grew up in Bible-believing churches are nodding furiously, and everyone else is going, eh. Because we view the Bible as an instruction manual, we see instructions first. For those of you raised in that way, that's what you see the most. And when you see those things, I think you miss something else. 
What we don't see is why Paul tried to convince people he was writing to to act in particular ways. And what I'm proposing this morning is I think we should pay at least as much attention to what Paul did as to what Paul said. At least as much attention to what Paul did as to what Paul said. Now, Paul said a lot of things, and lots of them are easy to comprehend. Lots of them are easy to follow out, or difficult to follow out, but we can understand the logic. But some of them are really tricky and and need pushback. But Paul did one other thing, is he modeled how to work out what to do, how to be faithful to God in an ever-changing world. One of the things about the Bible is the Bible doesn't come with instructions about what to do with the Bible. 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, um, 2 Timothy talks about uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it says, you know, all scripture is useful, useful for teaching um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But it doesn't talk about what to do with the New Testament because it wasn't canonized yet. It also said that it's God inspired, that the Hebrew Bible was God inspired, but it doesn't say exactly what that means. And the New Testament gives us a strange dilemma as people who hold a sacred text. It gives us two modes of instruction. The first is example, and the second is advice. You just may have missed the first one because you've been trained to look for the second. So our question for today is, do we do what they did, or do, do we do what they said? We're going to be talking about Peter and Paul and some weird crap. And the biggest ethical dilemma in the early church and the biggest ethical dilemma in the entire of the early church was, do we circumcise the people that are coming in to try and become part of the people of God? The sign that you are in is that you are circumcised, for men at least. And then, you know, their families just came as a package deal because that's how society worked. The disciples and the early followers of Jesus were all Jews, until the filthy Gentiles started getting on board. So, let's go to Peter having a pizza dream. Acts 10, verse 9 to 16. Does someone want to read this one? Anyone with an affinity to pizza dreams? Ben Tumney, I think that's an excellent. Your life is a pizza dream. No, I'm not going to go there. Uh, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. (laughs) Uber Eats is great. He saw heaven opened and something like a huge sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Thank you. Okay. Why was Paul, why had Peter, why was Peter calling the things unclean? Because God said they were unclean. In the law, those things in the sheet were unclean. Jews were not allowed to eat them. Peter was a Jew who, followed, who believed he had found the Messiah, Jesus. And so Paul, Peter's now got a dilemma. 
just slow this down a bit. This guy who had spent his entire life trying to be a faithful Jew, who perhaps even taken things even more seriously since he believed he'd been found Messiah, has a dream about a sheet with animals in it that he's not allowed to eat. And he thinks God has said, you need to eat these things. And he has an argument with the angels to say, no, I don't. They're like, this is like some kind of like, is this a test? Like, (laughs) okay, uh, no, I'm not going to eat these things, even though I'm very hungry and dinner's taking ages. While he's doing this, um, some, some people rock up to the house and say that there's a Roman soldier. Now, a Roman soldier is a Gentile. And there were God-fearing Gentiles, but Jews were not allowed to associate with them or dine with them because they were uncircumcised and they weren't the people of God. But this Roman soldier sent, um, he had a dream, (laughs) there's lots of dreams in this, and sent some people to go and get Peter to come to his house. And Peter's like, well, I've just had a weird dream and this guy's just had a weird dream, I'll go to his house. And so Peter gives this great big um, speech I'm talking about this weird dream that he had. And these people seem to have been affected by God, which is very strange to him because that's not really what's supposed to happen. Only Jews are supposed to be affected by God. But something else is happening. And so we'll pick it up here in verse 27. One more reader. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Yeah. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Which Peter did. This is his first ever time spending time in the house of an uncircumcised person is in, in his entire life. He would have eaten unclean food for the first time in his entire life. He spent his entire life building his identity around this one thing which he believed was faithfulness to God. And then that one thing got stretched. How did it get stretched? Because he saw God present with people that God was not allowed to be present with. Stretch. This whole thing blows up much bigger. Because Paul goes back, sorry, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. And there's kind of the, apostles hanging out there, and they're trying to work out what to do with all these people that are um, starting to follow Jesus. 
And so they've got to start kind of declaring what's supposed to happen and who's in and who's out. And this thing seems to be happening all over the place where Gentiles are experiencing the same Holy Spirit that the Jews are, which again is very troubling when you're supposed to be the solo, single, chosen people of God. And then this guy Paul, who's this, goes by the name Saul, and is uh, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, the law keeper of all law keepers. He's been going around beating the crap out of Christians, seeing them killed under his watch because they're following the wrong Messiah. He gets knocked off his horse, <laughs> and God shows up to him, this is in Acts 9, and says, why are you harassing me? These people are doing it right. And he gets struck blind for three days and then goes, oh, maybe Jesus is Messiah. And then spends the rest of his time going around all the synagogues trying to say, I've found Messiah. Peter and Paul play a really pivotal role in the declaration that would change the church forever, that Gentiles can be baptized without following every single commandment of the law. This is the church council. And some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. No brainer. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that God accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as God did to us. God did not discriminate between us and them, for God purified their hearts by faith. Now, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of, a gent of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And this is the letter that they sent out to the churches of their declaration of what to do when a Gentile, like you or me, if you're non-Jewish, what happens to us if we try and become a part of the people of God? This is what they said. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You would abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Now, we can get into why those things are there another time. In short, it's because they were the minimum requirements for being able to actually spend any time in the company of other faithful Jews. It was a missionary decision. It was to go stay clean in these ways so that you can at least talk to the people that we want you to talk to about Messiah and they'll be able to talk back to you. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to take this commandment that has gone on for all of Jewish history had been the this, this central commandment of what the boundary marker is of faithfulness to God and acceptance in the family and to say God's doing something new. Peter, um, sorry, Paul later writes that the law was just a babysitter or a helpful guide to look after Israel until Jesus came. In Paul's view, it was temporary. And points, the way, and points the way, but no longer is to be followed by the letter, which is not at all what the Hebrew Bible says about the law. Now, 
I'm not getting into arguments about superstitionalism or <laughs> Jewish-Christian relations or any of these things. What I'm trying to do here is show what it is to be faithful to the people who wrote letters in the Bible. Paul knows and has an inkling from the prophets that God will do something new, and now he's seen it. And the only thing to do is to understand the text differently in light of what God is doing. So Paul's instructions in his letters are Paul grappling with what, he, what everyone knew about God as was written, mixed in with the promise that God was going to do new things, mixed in with what God was doing in front of them. What else is Paul going to do? He's going to try and merge these things together to try and help a fledgling church know what faithfulness looks like. So here's the catch for us. What takes precedent? What Paul did or what, sorry, what Paul did or what Paul said? Peter and Paul and the early church model for us ethical improvisation. On the fly attempts to come to terms with faithfulness, with what faithfulness looks like in a way that captures what the Spirit has done in the past and what the Spirit is doing now. This is my little summation formula of what they're trying to do. What God's done, what's been shown to us in scriptures, plus what God is doing, plus what God might be saying, equals what we do now. So Paul's writing instructions about how to treat slaves, what to do if you are a slave, about head coverings in churches, about all of these things, trying to merge the story that he's held for this entire time with the radical things that God's doing right present amongst them at that moment. And our issue is if we treat these improvisations as timeless without an eye to what God's doing among us now, we're following their instructions, which were meant for a different people in a different time, but we're not following their example. If we follow their example, we hope for at least some coherence between what went before and what is happening now. It's not a matter of just making things up from scratch, but it's about having an eye to what God is doing. We'll talk about the risks and benefits of the strategy in a minute, but I just want to brief, really briefly mention something which is really deeply personal to me. This is a queer-affirming church. And for me, I am a queer-affirming minister, not in spite of the Bible, but because of it. If it wasn't for the Bible, there's every chance being a person who was raised in a small town who knew no openly gay people, who had been taught to fear gay people, there's every chance that never would have shifted for me. What shifted is not in spite of the Bible, it's because of exactly this thing here. This is one of the places I'm still a Pentecostal, because this is Pentecostal hermeneutics. That we have an openness to what the Spirit is doing in front of us. I spent years wrestling over what, I, what my tradition was with what I saw God doing amongst the people that I knew 
and what I felt led to in the spirit. And I was torn for a long, long time over this. I wrestled deeply with the text. I read, wrestled deeply with the precedent. But I could not shake the fact that what I think Paul was seeing when he's describing same-sex relationships and Paul's understanding of humanity did not line up with what I saw in front of me, an amazing, spirit-filled, gifted, beloved, queer people in my life. And for me, faithfulness to the text is faithfulness to follow the example of those who wrote the text. Not just their explicit on-the-fly instructions, which are useful and good, but not infallible and not foolproof. I had to find where the overlap was, the precedence being set, to feel released to say, I'm changing my mind on this. But I did so because I felt compelled by the evidence in the text and the experience of what I saw God doing amongst me. For me, this was following what Paul did. This is what Paul and Jesus would have done had Paul and Jesus lived in North Fitzroy in this time in this place. And it goes directly against explicitly what Paul says. And I still think that's faithfulness to the text. Conundrums. What are the risks and what are the benefits of this approach to the text? You can go, okay. <laughs> Shun the unbeliever. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Some people have lunch appointments, <laughs> you losers. I think that what God might be saying, what God might be saying to me might not be what God is saying to you, to you, to you. Like That opens it up to a lot of different interpretations because what God's really saying. Yep, absolutely. Oh, sorry, I thought you put your hand up. Oh, you're just doing your hair. Oh, okay, bailed. You're allowed to, you're allowed to bail. Retraction accepted. There was that thing that we've been saying that sometimes when the Bible says God, it's not really God. What God's done might not be what God did. Yeah. From downtown. Um, I guess for me, the risk and benefit is that it radically undermines our individualism and our certainties. And it, there's given that this is improvisations, that we need to, A, be communal in the way that we seek to discern and that we need to be incredibly humble about what we do discern. Yep. It has that sense that it's never done. This is a living wrestle. Like you're never done and have the truth. You know, that's like with the humility. It's always growing your faith will look different at your end of life than it does currently and your theology will change um which is a 
which is just such a nice stance to come to a community like, you know, a faith community with this growing theology. Maybe nice for you, but it's terrifying for lots of you know, like yeah, like for some of us, that does feel nice, and for some of us, it feels really anxiety-inducing. And where do you put your stability and trust? Yeah, it kind of um, moves away from a, a fixed orthodoxy. That that this is this is an orthodox statement of belief, and and that reality that speaks to us all differently. Um, and um, and within that, as Rob said, you know the, the value of a communal faith, the value of just just extending grace to each other. Like I, I don't want to have arguments with people theologically. I, I just don't enjoy that at all. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it up with you later, Shane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a fixed orthodoxy is an illusion anyway. <laughs> like, one of the controlling narratives of keeping people contained is to tell them that this is the way it's always been. And if you do any study of church history and any study of church tradition, that does not exist. There is no one way of always being. There are common threads, absolutely. But the church has continued to move and change while trying to appear like it has. My mind just goes back a little bit to our discussions around liberation theology um, and the connection between risk and reward and how how very present risk is in liberation and how very real reward is in liberation as well, but the quite profound journey that exists between that moment of risk and that moment of liberation. I see how, well, to me, <laughs> that, that could be quite wrong. <laughs> But what I see in that is liberation. Apologies, I sound like a prepubescent Simpsons character this morning. Um, for me, I think, oh, God. <laughs> um, the, the liberation for me comes, I have some perfectionist tendencies. And um, for me, it kind of just undermines that whole concept in that it's this going to change like there's actually um yeah it takes away that goal because of the flux nature of it anyway which is actually quite wonderful for someone like me as a i'm an enneagram seven who in places of unhealth moves to a one which is a perfectionist and it was actually the perfectionist tendencies in me that brought me to this because once i saw what Paul and Peter and the other authors were doing, I either had to pretend I'd never seen that or incorporate that in to the way I processed. So I either had to pretend that improvisation never happened or that it happened then, but no one else is allowed to do it, only them. But my problem with that is the Bible nor God nor anyone else says explicitly that improvisation ends there. We just assume it is because it's convenient. And so the perfectionist in me had to actually incorporate the illustration alongside the instruction, which is what drove me crazy until I had to adopt this way because I couldn't just pretend that they did something, that they didn't do something that they did. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
And so this, so this is the whole debate is like, and I'm not trying to create like a progressive conservative rift here, but the, the whole thing around kind of biblicism is that we take the Bible seriously. And for me, this is taking the Bible seriously, as seriously as you can take it, by following the model that is set for us. And how do you remain open to what God is doing in your midst, in your midst, in tension with what the church has seen God do before? And without that, we would still be endorsing slavery. Of me that doesn't want to join in with the Enneagram game, but as a two, <laughs> um, who has a yeah, and everybody tries to type you, and you'll never be yourself again. Um, but that for me comes with a lot of people pleasing kind of stuff, and so this is really lovely and gives me lots of freedom, but it's also really hard. Because as Paul gave before, that kind of space of this is how you can still be friends with Jews and be friends with Gentiles, um, I feel like that space is really hard to navigate because we don't want to create a divide, but how can you still be friends with conservatives and be friends with progressives at the same time and kind of work that out for yourself but I think a lot of it for me is the relationship stuff and go oh how do I be excited and have freedom and still maintain relationships where if anything you want to be able to yeah draw people as Paul was doing with those Jude Gentiles um, going how can you still be friends with them and draw them into this exciting thing um, yeah what does that the end Good wrestling. Mm. Yeah, I'm one of the people that finds this very, like, I'm caught between the risk and the reward of this, of, like, for me as a queer person, the reward, I'm like, yes, I, like, I deeply, deeply want that, but the risk of, you know, throwing, it feels like, I don't think it is, it feels like a throwing out of my tradition and the way that I was raised and so I, I almost feel like apologetic to my, like my opa, my oma, my grandparents, my family of being like, I'm rejecting this like beautiful tradition that you have found so much life in. Um, so yeah, I've, it's such a tug of war in me to be, like I feel like the struggle is to be faithful to this understanding and being faithful to family and like family of origin stories and I think, as Bell said, the the story of the, the being included in the story of the Bible and and being trusted to retell it, I feel like I'm betraying the story of my family, which is <sighs> which is why I think 
not being a reactionist is really important here. What this is trying to do is not say everyone else has got everything wrong and we have got this thing right. Because I would say that the overlap in terms of things that we love your neighbor, pray for your enemies. <laughs> it's really hard to get around those two with as much improvisation as you like. The central core strands of our faith, like there's so, so, so much overlap there. And so to kind of paint ourselves into a, um, this kind of like obsession with our difference, I think is a really dangerous thing to do as well, to say we've got this new thing, which is actually not, what I'm trying to prove here is that's not a new thing. We've got this thing, and this is what makes us different, and that's why you're wrong. It's just missing the point altogether because deep engagement with what binds us together is just as important, which I find really hard because I'm a smug asshole. Not sure if this um, helps wrap some of these things together, but some of my thoughts are, are about um, what tradition really is. And I think when we talk about law or tradition, we often think of things as fixed things. Um, whereas if tradition means and, and acknowledging, you know, your grandparents' experiences is is a, a living, evolving, moving tradition, then that's actually been the tradition all along. And I think one of the one of the things that struck me years ago, I went up to the Northern Territory, up into my folks were living in um, Darwin, and then I went up to the islands up there, uh, Melville Island. What, what are they called again? Tiwi Islands. Um, and just <laughs> I was kind of interested to see a tradition that was living, moving, changing, as being a tradition that we've got here from the Indigenous people that has been here for so many years. And part of that tradition is that things do evolve and change. So there were traditional dances that they showed and they showed older dances about um, events that had happened, you know, many thousands of years ago. But then amongst those traditions, they had a dance that was showing a dance in memory of the Bali bombings. And one of the things that struck me about that was that that was such a living, moving changing culture that had been there all along and that part, that change and improvisation and acknowledgement of what's going on in the time is part of that tradition and I, and I think maybe we can find that in our traditions too so rather than it being oh that's the old thing and we leave that and here's the new thing and we grab that it's actually the old thing actually always involved listening to God and and hearing what was going to happen now which sometimes is more radical than we imagine and for that idea of change and improvisation to be part of the tradition is can continue on. Beautiful. Took me a while, but I figured out what I wanted to say now. <laughs> um, uh, I think that they, um, I think that, the risk, one of the risks with this approach, um, I actually, I almost feel the opposite of Rod, like one of the risks is that what, what you can potentially have is just like a thousand different interpretations of what's going on and like no kind of community and everyone just sort of 
wandering off into their own uh, idea of, of what should happen. Um, and uh, I think potentially one of the ways to counteract that is that if you look at what has God done and what is God doing or what did Jesus do, um, that for Jesus it was just all about relationship and seeing everyone as valuable and looking past the way that they might cling to um, the laws and seeing them, seeing their individual needs and seeing them as as beloved. And um, if we if we put relationships at the centre of our community, that's the way that that's the only way that we can really exist in a space where there might be a thousand different interpretations of what's going on. And some of those interpretations might be, might lead like deeply uncomfortable and deeply disturbing for us. And but we still have to somehow have a relationship with the person sitting next. Um, that makes me think a bit about Jesus' little footnote of man was made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That idea that all of this stuff is there to bring life and nourishment and flourishing um, and that to be bound by it in a way that actually destroys is actually to miss the heart of it. And this is one of the things Paul does heaps as well. Because Paul just keeps on going back and going. All of these things are summed up by loving one another, which is an incredibly liberal and dangerous statement to make <laughs> um, because it's just not precise enough. Um, but there's risks either way because the risks of biblicism cause incredible damage too, as you're well aware. Mm. Okay. I think that's enough chewing for today. Um, <laughs> If I'll post a couple of things on Facebook this week. So this is one of those mornings where the kind of academic scholarly mountain that sits below this thing here is quite large um, with lots of pushback and to and fro. If you're interested in that side of things, um, get in touch and I can post a couple. I can send you a few things to read and think about and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, let's have a, a deep engagement with the text, let's have a deep engagement with the spirit, let's have a deep engagement with knowing who Jesus is um, and hopefully those things hold us safe and direct us forward. Let's eat and drink together. Uh, our practice is to, um, this is communion, um, it's delicious crackers and quite nice grape juice um, as symbolic of Jesus who invited us to have this meal together every time we gathered. Um, to eat and drink in remembrance of him, of the one who included, of the one who offered life, of the one who was a nourishing well, um, and of the one who was crushed by the powers, being ready and convenient. Um, today, if you would like to eat and drink in the memory of Jesus, uh, we invite you. If you don't want to, that's absolutely fine too. If you want to pretend, that's okay. You just might like grape juice. It's totally fine. Uh, what we do is we take a little symbol, a thimble symbol, um, and a bit of cracker each, and then we wait till everyone's got some, and then we eat and drink together at the end. So if you'd like to come forward for that, you're more than welcome.
I know some of you are panicking that Hemi might have missed out on his Jesus juice. He didn't. He got it before he left. It's okay. Loving God, we want to be a community of faithfulness and trust. We want to be honest. We want to be kind. We don't want to take what went before lightly. We want to be faithful, not just to what was said, but for what was modeled for us. You said, Come unto me, all of you who are heavy burdened. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I pray that you would help us to embrace those words today. That when we are with you, that there would be a lightness. That we would feel that you are not placing anything on us that we cannot bear. And the things that are crushing us, that you sit beside us, that you know. God, help us to work our way forward. Help us to be free. Help us to be faithful. In your loving name. Amen. Let's eat and drink together.